you have your Bibles, open them with me this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we will look this morning at verses 42 through 50. Mark 9, 42 through 50. I was sitting over there, and uh, as we're singing that song, and we're, we're singing, You are gracious in saving, perfect in loving, one day returning. Um, I, I got hung up on um, perfect in loving. Um, because I, I, I just began to think about how many times I have spurned God's grace. I've spurned His presence in my life. I've spurned His discipline. I, I, I have... I have ran from His commandments. I have disobeyed Him. I have rejected His authority over my life, yet He has never once left me. And I, I got to thinking about the discipline of God. And, you know, I don't remember ever as a child, after my father spanked me, turning and saying to him, Oh, gracious Father, you are perfect in loving. You know, that would have been sort of sick and twisted, you know. Uh, but... That's the opportunity that we have when we come together to worship and we sing songs like this. Is that we, we say to God that even when, even when I am rejecting your rightful rule and reign over my life and I'm going my own way, you're perfect in loving me back to you. Even when you discipline me. That's, that's good. That's rich. And, and I would encourage you at times when we sing together, um, sometimes just... Uh, you know, Ethan probably wouldn't like for me to say this to you, but just kind of drop out singing and just contemplate the words. Just think about. In fact, I, he, would, he would like for me to say that. Just think about and contemplate what we're singing and think through what that means because they have intention. I mean, they're there for a reason. We're not just coming in this place and going through the motions. We are singing things that are true of God, and we are singing in response to what God has done for us. Amen? Amen. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark 9, let's begin reading in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. Now, that millstone, uh, some of you grew up maybe a round mill or a grist mill, or you've, you've, you have this picture in your mind. Uh, there was, it was common in that day, there was a little hand mill that... that women would use and they would turn the grain and they would they would grind meal on this this is not what he's talking about he's not talking about something that one of the women picks up and holds in her lap before she wants to make some cornbread i'm not sure if they had cornbread in jerusalem but they should have if they didn't you know that's not what he's talking about here he's talking about he says a great millstone this is a millstone that was turned by a mule a mule or a team of mules, they were, they were fastened or hitched to this, this millstone and they would go around and around and grind this grain. This is a heavy, heavy, large stone. And Jesus says here, it would be better for the person who causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have one of these great, big millstones tied around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. That's a drastic picture, isn't it? I mean, that's not the, the loving, meek, mild Jesus with perfect hair that you see in all of the pictures. This is the real Jesus, which is the series that we're in. Real people, real Jesus. Let's continue reading. 
For him, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Some translations say pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the uh, winter of 2009, uh, you'll remember this story because it made national news. Uh, In the winter of 2009, in February, there was a woman in Connecticut. She was 55 years old. Her name was Charlotte Nash. She had had a pet chimpanzee for a number of years. In fact, it wasn't hers. It was actually belonged to a neighbor friend of hers, but she was closely associated with this lady and with this chimpanzee. This chimpanzee had starred in Coca-Cola commercials, Old Navy commercials. This was, this was the family pet, and he was rather popular. He was known in this particular city in Connecticut. He was somewhat of a celebrity. He was known to walk the streets of this city even without a leash, um, and, and people would just say, hey, uh, there's Travis, Travis the chimpanzee. His name was Travis. Doesn't seem like a name for a chimpanzee, but that was his name. And Travis would walk the streets in this town in Connecticut, and he would do things like when he was at home, he would get the remote control, and he would change the channel on TV to what he wanted to watch. He would go out, and he would take hay and feed hay to uh, the family's horses. Um, he would do all sorts of things. He had become, it was one of the time he was a menace in this town. He had, uh, he had escaped uh, in, back in 2003, and he had, for two hours, just, you know, ran rampant in this city. But harmless, just, but he had just caused all sorts of havoc. Well, in 2009, in February, things turned altogether different. In 2009, Travis, the chimpanzee, took a key and unlocked his cage and came out of the cage. His owner called Charla Nash to come over and help, help her get Travis back into his cage. Travis, by this time, was rather large. He was 200 pounds, and, uh, and he was uh, getting rather old. Well, she came over, and when she got out of the car, uh, Travis didn't act normal. Charla had had a recent haircut that made her look differently, but they don't know if that's really why he did what he did. But Travis attacked Charla. And the 911 call came in, and it came from the owner of Travis, and she was pleading with the 911 operator, someone come quick, he's tearing her apart. Silence on the phone. A few seconds later... She said to the 911 operator, he's just killed my friend. Police officers came and put the animal down. But it wasn't before, and I warn you, this is graphic. I 
could have brought pictures, but I don't want to show you those pictures. She was so mangled. She lived, but she was so mangled that today she does not have eyes. She has no nose and she has no lips. Sometimes what is so close and seems so innocent and so loving and so harmless, even the family pet has to be destroyed. And that's the picture that we get here when Jesus talks about sin in the life of the believer. I want you to know today that when I start and when we go into this sermon, it's going to seem like this is a great text for me to preach one of those hellfire and brimstone sermons. It'd be a great opportunity for me to just stomp around the stage and spit and sweat and everything else up here. But I don't want to do that. But nor do I want to take away from you the harsh reality that is hell. Hell is not very popular today. But Jesus here gives us a shocking warning. The danger of sin in the believer's life. And he warns of hell. So let's dive into this. I've got three points in this sermon today. You know as well as I do, that means very little. Uh, The first point will probably take a while to develop. The second two will go rather quickly. So bear with me as we go through this. I want us, first of all, to look today at these causes of sin. If Jesus here is blatantly, shockingly warning us of sin and the consequences of sin, then we probably ought to look at what he sees and what he points out as the causes of sin. The first cause that I want to show you in the text is it comes from outside influences. And he says here, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and he goes on from there, but we, we stop there and we have to ask ourselves, who is he talking about? Who are these little ones? Well, it could be a reference to all believers because after all, All of us who are believers in Christ, no matter how long we have been believers, we are all compared to Jesus Christ, little ones. We never get there. We never arrive. We will be in this process of being conformed to the image of Christ all of our earthly lives. It was pointed out to me, Terry said just the other day in the Great Commission Conference, that even when we get to heaven, we will never stop learning. We will never stop growing. So this could be a reference to all of us as believers because comparatively we are all little ones. But probably in the context of the larger chapter and what we looked at last week, Jesus here is more than likely talking about little ones being new believers or weak believers. All of us have known a new believer that really when they got a dose of the gospel, they got a dose of the gospel. And they overflow with just this new reality in their life. That their sins are forgiven. That Christ is the Son of God. That He has risen from the dead and He's paid their sin debt. And they can't, they can't contain it. They overflow. It's what Romans 15 talks about when Paul says, I pray that you would overflow with hope in Christ Jesus. And we all have known someone like that. Sadly, we also have known believers who have become... Less than exuberant over the years. And 
the reality is we're not going to stay up on that mountain in that spiritual high all of our lives. The reality, I mean, we, we can't. We saw this in the transfiguration when Jesus led them back down the mountain. But sadly, there have the reality is that too often there are Christians who fill our churches every single week who have gotten over the gospel. That's sad. How do we get over the gospel? How do you get beyond it? But we know this reality that there are those who are new in the faith and they are on fire for the Lord. Even those who maybe have been walking with the Lord for a long time that are still on fire. There are some in that category. Then there are those who have grown cold. And I think that's what he's talking about here. Is he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, the new believer or the weak believer, to sin. We've known so many believers, and maybe you've even been that believer. Maybe I've been that believer from time to time, who rather than helping one of these new or weak believers to live godly, to live holy, to live a life pursuing Christ, instead we have maybe willingly or accidentally caused them to sin. It happens sometimes when pastors preach heresy out of either ignorance or laziness or for personal gain. And this happens all the time. Pastors preach this way. They preach heresy. Sometimes they don't know they're preaching it. Other times they know they are, but for personal gain, they preach it anyway. And they cause believers to sin. Sometimes these new or weak believers are caused to sin because they look around in the church and they see leadership, deacons, Sunday school teachers who abuse their office, abuse their authority for their own personal agenda. And they're caused to sin. Sometimes church members who are unwilling to forgive and bitter cause these new or these weak believers to look at that and say, then that must be what it's like. And they cause them to enter into sin. Gossip. Gossip runs rampant through so many circles in the church. How many times have you been in a prayer meeting and heard a prayer request that was really not a prayer request, but it was really gossip? That gossip sometimes leads these new or weak believers to sin. They long to listen to it and they get addicted to it and they, before long they are participating in it. And this is anything but Christ-like. Even sometimes exercising the liberty that we have in Christ in front of a believer who is not there yet or not ready for that would cause them to sin. Jesus here says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better to have this great millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. This is drastic. So if Jesus feels this way about it, if this is that serious, then maybe we should say, how do we Avoid causing our brothers and sisters to sin. And how should we treat one another? Well, John MacArthur points out four ways in his commentary on this. He points out four ways that we cause one another to sin. I don't want to get hung up here, but I thought this was good from John MacArthur. Four ways that we cause others to sin. Number one is this direct temptation. 
where we invite someone. We, we invite them to sin with us. We invite them into the gossip. We invite them to go here and do this. It's direct temptation. Sometimes, number two, it's indirect temptation. We don't really realize we're doing it, but we are. And he points out that this is when we maybe flaunt what we have, and it causes jealousy in them. It, re- it brings them to that point of jealousy. Sometimes you're, you're just indifferent or you're unkind, and it provokes them to anger. Number three, sometimes we cause one another to sin by setting a sinful example. This is when we're actually out there sinning ourselves and caring nothing for our testimony and leading them astray. Number four, he says sometimes we cause our brother or our sister to sin just by failing to stimulate righteousness. And this is what Hebrews chapter 10 talks about when it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, that when you come together that you are to stir up love and good works in one another. And sometimes he says we just fail to do that. We don't take righteousness seriously. and We don't stir one another or push one another to it. And these are ways that we cause one another to sin. And Jesus says that it's so serious that for the person who does that, it would be better for this large millstone to be hung around his neck and him to be thrown into the sea. Matthew, when he tells this, he says the depths of the sea. Get that picture in your mind. Imagine that sinking to the bottom of the sea. I mean, this is drastic. This is not just language here that Jesus uses just to give us a a picture. He really wants us to see how serious this is. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid causing our brother or sister to sin? How should we treat one another? Well, back in verse 37 in this same chapter... Jesus said to them, after he pulls the child into them, he pulls the child into himself, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So what Jesus here is saying when he continues this talk of the little ones is that when we treat one another as being better than ourselves, When we say to ourselves, in my walk, let me do nothing, Lord, that would cause my brother or my sister to stumble. When we receive our brothers and sisters in that way, with that attitude, in fact, we are are treating Christ the same way. However we treat our brothers and sisters, it's really how we're treating the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus illustrated this in the story later when he said, told them... um, they had done all this for them and uh, for him, and he told he, they said, uh, "Lord, when did we, when did we feed you or give you water or see you naked or in prison?" And he said, "When you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me." And so, one of the great ways that we can avoid causing our brother or our sister to sin is by seeing them. And how we treat them in the same light, in the same way, it's really how we feel about Christ and how we treat Him as well. It's uh, what 1 Corinthians 8 talks about when Paul says this. This is the attitude that we should have when he says, If food makes my brother stumble, then I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
can you honestly say today that that would be your attitude? That I would do nothing to cause my brother to stumble? Jesus here, remind you, I've said it multiple times, it would be better to have this great millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause your brother or sister to stumble. Yet we walk around and act like it's no big deal. Am I my brother's keeper? We hear the words of Cain. And sometimes those words are ours. And the reality is, in the church, we are to be our brother's keeper. We are to love them over and above ourselves. Because when we do that, it is an expression of our love for God. So that's cause number one. Cause number one of sin in our lives could be these outside influences, and you could be the outside influence. But the second cause of sin in our lives is inner depravity. It's this inner depravity. And we see this when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, then tear it out. It's very graphic language. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, first off, he is not saying to us that we should spend all of our time looking at these three different body parts and saying, well, what does this mean? What does the hand mean? And what does the foot mean? And what does the eye mean? It has nothing really to do with it. We're not to, we're not to spend all of our time dealing with each of those individually. They are meant to be a picture of the, what R. Kent Hughes calls the totality of life. That the hand really represents what we do, the foot where we go, and the eye what we see. That it's all of, what, all, all, of, all of our lives. Whatever's causing us to sin in whatever area it is, we should take such drastic measures to get rid of it that it's similar to cutting the hand off. So Jesus here, though, is not saying, look at each, each of these individually. Nor does Jesus want us literally to cut off body parts. Somebody in the room should go, you know. Because the reality is, when we read that, and if, we're, if we believe in the authority of Scripture, and it says there, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, then some of us would have to cut off our hand. Some of us would be walking around with an eye patch on, wouldn't we? Some of us wouldn't be walking around at all. And Jesus here is not wanting us literally to cut off body parts. And there have been cases where this has been taken literally in history. One of the, probably the most famous incident of this was Origen of Alexandria, who emasculated himself in an attempt to flee sexual desires. He wasn't the only one. He was one of many which led the church to have to condemn this practice. What Origen found out was... That even after he had done this extreme act, he was not rid of the sinful desire at all. Because the sinful desire was not in the body part. The sinful desire was within him. The sinful desire is within all of us. Because we are children of Adam outside of Christ. We have his nature. Thank God. Through Jesus Christ, the second Adam. That old nature is destroyed. 
We still live with these tendencies to sin, but in Christ we are new. Jesus here is saying to them that not that we must mutilate the flesh, but that we should mortify the flesh. This is what the Puritans and others talked about. What R. Kent Hughes says. He says, what Jesus is calling for us is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. And I want you to keep in mind here that Jesus is not talking about, or he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to those who have said, You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Even though they didn't understand all of what that would mean yet, he's talking to followers. And so don't hear me saying today, and don't hear the text saying today, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, that all you've got to do is just find this sinful activity in your life and rid yourself of it. That's religion. That's works. And works don't work. You can never rid yourself of enough sin to make yourself acceptable before God. What you need is the righteousness of Christ imputed to your life. And the only way that happens is by turning from your sin, trusting in Christ alone. And when that happens, the Bible says that He takes your sin on Himself and He takes His righteousness and puts it on you. So don't hear me saying that today, if you are a dirty, no good, rotten sinner, that all you need to do is go get in the spiritual shower and clean yourself up. Because you could stay in there from now until the end of your life and never get clean. Those of us who are Christians, though, those of us who are believers, who are new in Christ. The Bible gives us specific commands. In Romans 8, 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's this mortification of sin. It's it's spiritual mortification, not physical mutilation. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Galatians 5, 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The reality is that if you are a believer, if your sins have been forgiven, then you cannot go on living in your sin. You can no longer savor it and enjoy it and you will experience the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit living inside of you. This sin is the very thing that Jesus laid his life down for. The third cause of sin this morning, not only these outside influences, not only this inner depravity, but the third that I want to give you, it's, it's not as obvious in the text, but it's contaminated living. Contaminated living. It's down in verse 50 in the first part where it says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Salt was vital in those days. 
They had no refrigeration. They had no ice. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't say, okay, somebody go into the walk-in and, you know, pull out the ham. They, they couldn't do that. So salt was necessary. Salt was a preservative. Salt warded off the decay. And it kept things from spoiling. I remember as a kid growing up in East Tennessee, my, and several of you remember this as well, but my grandfather raised hogs. And we used to go up there, and those hogs, I think, boy, those are just nasty, dirty animals. And look at them, you know, they, you know, give a hog or a pig a bath, you might as well forget it, because he's getting dirty again. I remember going in what they called the blockhouse. The blockhouse was where Papa kept all the tools and all that kind of stuff, and there was what was the equivalent of a workbench in there. I remember us playing, all the cousins were running around, and it is, it's July, and it is hot. Right in there on that workbench in the blockhouse is this big slab of bacon. Uncooked, (laughs) just sitting there in the blockhouse. Now, the blockhouse was cooler than it was outside, but it wasn't cold. It wasn't a walk-in. It wasn't refrigerated. And I remember as a kid thinking, "How how does that work? And then we'd go in the house and we'd go to the stove and... I loved bacon, and I've passed that love of bacon on to my daughter. My daughter even has a T-shirt that says, I heart bacon. We'd go from there into the house, and Mamma would always have a plate on the stove of leftover bacon from that morning's breakfast. And we'd just all through the day just run through, and we'd just grab a piece of bacon, and we'd eat that thing on the way out the door, and we'd just run around and do everything we wanted to do. Now, how in the world did that bacon that tasted so good come from that piece of flesh that should be rotting in the heat of July out of the blockhouse because it was salty it was salty like no other bacon I've had since and that's what salt is here so when when scripture here says when Jesus says salt is good They all knew it was good. In fact, it was one of the ways that oftentimes the guards were paid was in salt. They were worth their salt. It was good, and they knew it because they needed it. It is good to preserve things. They needed it for life. Then he goes on and he says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, That didn't make sense to us because the table salt that you and I have doesn't lose its saltiness. It is stable. It's going to sit there. You can have a salt shaker sit in your cabinet for years. And you pull it down and salt something and it's going to be salty. Because for us, it is pure salt. It is stable. You may have to put some rice or something in there to keep moisture from getting in and it clogging up. But it's going to be salty, right? In those days, though, they didn't have salt like you and I do. In those days, their salt came from the region around the Dead Sea. And their salt was not pure salt. Their salt was mixed with a lot of impurities like gypsum. And what they could do is salt would sit there for a while, and they could take maybe all the salt out of it, and you'd have this gypsum left over. And it may look like salt, but it wasn't salt. And you could sprinkle or rub as much gypsum on that piece of meat as you wanted to, but it wasn't going to preserve that piece of meat. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? What Jesus is saying to us is exactly what James Brooks is writing in his commentary when he says, a person may have the external appearance of a disciple, but not the internal properties. We can live these contaminated lives. Have you ever tried to walk in two different directions at the same time? It's not going to work, is it? I mean, it'll work for a while, but after a while, you reach your limit, depending on the length of your legs and how flexible you are. You can't walk in two different directions. You... It's a physical impossibility. So how is it that we as Christians can say, I want to follow Christ. I want to love him with all my heart. I want to give him all of my life. But then we still walk in the other direction. We still play with the sin and we still pick it up and we still entertain it. You can't do it. That's what Jesus is saying in the end when he says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Either be salt or be gypsum, but don't try to be both. That's what he's saying. So those are the causes of sin in this text. They're these outside influences, this inner depravity, and then this contaminated living, this mixing of sin and holiness. It doesn't work. Now, here's the two other points. You say, I thought you already covered all three. Here's the two others. Those were the causes of sin. Then here, quickly, the consequences of sin. Jesus here says it is serious. He points this out when he says, it would be better for you to go into life crippled than with two hands to go into hell. It would be better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. It would be better... For you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And the word there for hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna comes from a a one word that that comes from two words, um, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was on the southwest side of Jerusalem. In uh, pre-Israelite days, it was a place where parents sacrifice their own children to Moloch. When Josiah became king, he ended that practice and he condemned that place. After Josiah, it was turned into the local Jerusalem landfill. And it was where all of the garbage went. It was where all of the sewage went to. It was even where they would take dead bodies and take them to. This was a place that became synonymous with punishment because it Reaped. It is said that at the Valley of Hinnom, when it was this landfill, that there was a fire constantly burning with all the garbage there, that it never went out. It was also said that worms never stopped eating there. The other day I had to take some stuff and I took my son with me. Uh, it's been a little while now, but we went over to the landfill. I didn't realize we had that many seagulls up here in the upstate. They were everywhere. It was nasty. I mean, it was just, you know, we pulled up and I backed the trailer up and Makai said, 
do I have to get out? I said, yeah, I'm staying in the car. <laughs> no, we both got out and we, we experienced just a little bit of what this valley of Hinnom was like. And that's where Jesus gets his descriptors. In verse 43 where he says, Hell has unquenchable fire. Hell is a place where their worm never stops eating. That's why he says it would be better for them to have this large millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to go to this place. Recently, Rob Bell, a pastor in Michigan, has written a book called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of everyone who's ever lived. This is a popular book right now, uh, MSNBC, uh, Good Morning America. All these people have picked up on it. They've interviewed him. Uh, it's causing a huge stir. This is the guy who many of you have seen the NUMA videos. This is the pastor in those NUMA videos that we have for years, even in Southern Baptist life and through Lifeway stores, we've, we've put these videos out there and we've shown to our people. Now he's come out with this book and his basic premise in this book is that hell makes a horrible story. That the better story is of a God who loves everyone so much that he would never send anyone to a place called hell. That instead, regardless of what they believe about Jesus Christ in the end, God will rescue everyone. And they will all spend eternity with him. And really, he says, you know, heaven is really this thing that's going to come to be here on earth. Compare that with the more orthodox view of J.C. Ryle. When J.C. Ryle says, there is no mercy in keeping back from people the subject of hell. Were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all who believe in him, we might well shrink from the awful topic. Were there no precious blood of Christ able to cleanse all sin, we might well keep silence about the wrath to come. But there is mercy for all who ask in Christ's name. It's not kind, in other words, J.C. Ryle says, to hold back hell from people because you think it might offend them. And it's a horrible story. In fact, Al Mohler points out that the problem with Rob Bell's argument is that it's really not a story. Who cares if it's a good story or a bad story? It's not a story. It is reality. That's that's the issue here. It doesn't matter what Rob Bell thinks is more or less palatable to the humans that he encounters. It is not merciful to hold back from someone the reality of hell. In fact, the most merciful thing that we could do is point hell out to people and then show them the mercy that is offered in Christ. That's a good story. That's reality. Jesus himself pointed to this. He says the consequences of sin in your life is hell. It is Gehenna. It is the place where the fire never goes out. The worm never stops eating. 
You want to avoid it at all costs, even if you have to tie a large stone around your neck and cast yourself into the sea. Avoid this place. So then, third point. What do we do in light of this? What do we do when we see these causes of sin around us? We see the consequences of sin. Then what should we do? Well, in this text, we see consecration from sin being our only option. That we should turn from sin and turn to Christ. That we should cast ourselves on His mercy, His grace alone. Don't cause... Christian, listen to me. Don't cause one another to sin. Don't argue among one another. Don't bicker. Don't gossip. Don't be angry with one another. Think of one another as Christ Himself. And that how you treat your brother or your sister is how you would treat Christ. Consecrate yourself from this and say, I will do everything possible and with the strength of the Spirit that lives within me not to cause my brother to sin. I will humble myself. What better way could we be like Christ who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He humbled Himself, taking the form of a servant and going to the cross. Don't you think there was ever a moment in that walk where Jesus felt like saying, forget it. I'm trying to love you all. I'm trying to reconcile you back to the Father and all you can do is spit on me. And all you can do is yell obscenities at me. You punch me. You nail me to the cross. Forget it. I mean, if we take the fact that He's God out of that and we look at Him as a human being, in His humanity... I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to think like that? The reality is, if we're going to be like Christ, there's going to be some times when brothers and sisters spit on us and say obscene things to us. And if we're going to be like Christ, we will love them through it all. And we will do nothing to cause them to sin. That's hard, that's not easy. But that's following Christ. He gives them this radical picture of cutting it off. The reality is that that will be painful. But not as painful as eternity in hell. Sometimes the family pet has to be destroyed. Sometimes the animal of sin in your life needs to be done away with, no matter what the cost. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that what I have said this morning... God, that you would take it and that you would keep it from being heard as religion. That you would keep it from being heard as works. God, that you would lead me and lead those who sit here today 
to the point where we are utterly, solely dependent on your grace. And God, that that grace and your mercy would lead us to work out our salvation in casting off sin as you are working in us to will to do those things. God, I pray that you would help us today to see the severity of sin, that we would no longer entertain it, be enamored with it and laugh at it. God, that we would view it as this animal that is destroying us. We would view it as the thing that caused you in your love to willingly go to the cross. Lord, this morning I pray, God, that you would lead us to that place. God, for the person who's here today who does not know you as their personal Lord, their personal Savior, then God, today I pray that you would show them their own sinfulness, their hopelessness in it, that you would show them, God, your own grace and mercy and love in the cross, your justice that is there, and that they would turn from their sin and trust you alone as their Savior. God, would you move among us however you want. And God, we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.